Good morning. Trump's new indictment is a former president a threat to America. Vienna Peace Conference censored the Bureau and the Mole, and New York faces a new environmental disaster. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the news. For the second time in as many months, former President Donald Trump is facing multiple felony charges. The Justice Department's special counsel, Jack Smith, investigating classified documents found at the Trump Florida residence, announced the 37 charges last week. Today, an indictment was unsealed, charging Donald J. Trump with felony violations of our national security laws, as well as participating in a conspiracy to obstruct justice. This indictment was voted by a grand jury of citizens in the Southern District of Florida. And I invite everyone to read it in full, to understand the scope and the gravity of the crimes charged. In a speech to GOP supporters on Saturday, Trump denied the charges, accusing the government of a double standard. But unlike me, who had absolute declassification authority as president, Biden didn't have any authority and he had no right to possess those documents, none whatsoever. Yet nothing happened to Crooked Joe with all that many, many, many times what we have. And, you know, uh, there was an article recently that all presidents take documents out. They bring them out, all of them, virtually every one of them in fairly modern times. If you look at Hillary Clinton set up an illegal private server in her basement specifically to break public disclosure laws and that would expose her and her family's finances. Trump's former vice president, Mike Pence, who is running for the GOP nomination, says he cut the president loose when he went too far on January 6th, 2021. January 6th was a tragic day in the life of this nation. But thanks to the courage of law enforcement, the violence was quelled. We reconvened the Congress the very same day. It gives me no pleasure to say it, but on that fateful day, the American people deserve to know that President Trump demanded that I choose between him and the Constitution. Well, I chose the Constitution, and I always will. Under the Constitution. And in his Saturday speech in Atlanta, Trump fired back at his critics. He called them communists. This vicious persecution is a travesty of justice. You're watching Joe Biden. Joe, I think of it. Biden is trying to jail his leading political opponent, an opponent that's beating him by a lot in the polls, just like they do in Stalinist Russia or communist China. No different. The federal indictment accuses the former president of possessing documents on United States and foreign nations' nuclear weapons and other defense information, including plans of attack and U.S. plans for retaliation in the event of an attack. A retired judge, a professor of constitutional law, Bill Blum, tells the news the indictment is unprecedented and the outcome is unpredictable. Well, this is a very serious case that's been filed in Florida against Trump for the willful retention of classified documents and conspiracy to obstruct justice, withholding documents that have been requested, corruptly concealing documents. He's conspired allegedly with his valet, Walt Malta, 
These are serious charges, and the maximum penalty that he could face upon conviction is 20 years. This is the first time a former president has ever been indicted on federal charges, but then Donald Trump is a person of first. You know, he's the greatest of all time. It's never been done like this before, and all of those monikers that uh, and, and titles that he's uh, always uh, attributed to himself have come true. The chickens have come home to roost. Would the federal government accuse somebody of withholding classified documents and then not have him tell everything he knows? Conceivably, they will offer him a deal, but uh, I, I think he's at this point he's rejected any and all deals. His, his attorneys, or at least his former attorneys, keep switching them, firing them, met with the prosecutor earlier this week. That didn't stop the indictment from being filed. Donald Trump is headed to trial. I think he's got to be extremely nervous. The one thing that he has going for him, apart from all the procedural protections that the Constitution affords any defendant, especially in terms of exercising them, a defendant with money, is that venue is in uh, South Florida, where initially, at least, the case has been assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon, who is the one who delayed things after the search warrant was issued in August. He has that going for him. I don't know if she'll stay on the case. I would expect that the Department of Justice would move to recuse her since she was twice reversed by the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals on rulings pertaining to the search of Mar-a-Lago. Of course, he's going to try the case in the court of public opinion, which is his right within limits as long as he doesn't threaten the personal safety of uh, the prosecutor or any of the prosecutor's families. I expect that this case will be scheduled for trial. We'll see various motions filed, motions to dismiss, motions uh, that uh, allege selective prosecution. At the same time, Donald is going to go to trial in New York on the big civil case in October. I think that's going to go forward. We're waiting to see whether or not he gets indicted in Georgia, whether or not he gets indicted by the D.C. grand jury for January 6-related activities. So he's in a world of legal trouble right now. He was heading to that long before he was president of the United States and his business practices in New York. He was sort of had it written across his shoulder that he, this was going to end in federal indictment. He is his own worst enemy on the documents case. This case didn't have to be filed. All he had to do was return all of the government records that he took with him as he left the White House. If he had simply returned them and opened Mar-a-Lago to the federal authorities, consented to have them do a thorough search of the premises, and they found what they found and they took them back, this indictment would never have been filed. The core of this is that he willfully retained the documents even after they were subpoenaed. So it's his defiance of the Department of Justice and federal law that has gotten him. Why himself. is he doing I, this? I know that's a hard question that, to ask. That's, I mean, a, that's the thing. I don't know. Is there I something in those documents? It could be many such things or it could just be bragging, right, that he has these documents. 
there's two allegations in the indictment that he showed or shared to some extent two documents with other people who weren't authorized to receive them. One occurred at Bedminster. Part of the transcript is excerpted in the indictment where he's shuffling or showing these papers, you know, holding them in his hand and saying, here, I have these documents. I wish I could show them to you. I, I, I should have declassified them, which blows his defense that he had declassified everything out of the water. But I didn't. There's absolutely no reason for him to have done that. Why he's doing this, I don't know. I'm not his psychiatrist, so I can't tell you from that standpoint. I'm sure he doesn't have one. Bandy Lee, who I've interviewed, a, a psychiatrist who got in trouble, and one of my favorite type of guests because she was willing to go against all the rules and know. say what she thought about this guy professionally. And, and she, she got fired. Yeah, she predicted this would happen. Yes, because he's a malignant narcissist, according to people like Bandy Lee. Malignant narcissists do things to punish other people, but Donald is, he's also very, very compulsive, so maybe he has some kind of OCD. He doesn't think before he acts, and he continues now, even now, to be making public statements about this case, which may be why the, the two attorneys just quit today, and they've been replaced. As a judge, what would it be like to look at a case like this from the bench, looking down on this? A fair-minded judge is going to keep their composure, like the judge in New York, just keep a tight rein on Donald. He has free speech rights, which you cannot abridge, but at the same time, he can't threaten the participants in the trial. So it's yeah, possible that. that a gag order could be imposed on him. Now, I don't know what this Judge Cannon would do, because, first of all, I don't think she was ever qualified to be a judge. And then her conduct in the handling of the search warrant generated universal condemnation from both conservatives and liberals who reviewed her uh, decisions. That's a real wild card. Is this to be her whole push? Donald Trump appointed people to the bench for reasons. Some of those reasons are, were to protect himself. But if you think about his appointment of three Supreme Court justices, he expects them to protect him. And this judge is a MAGA activist. It's a little like having Jim Jordan serve as the judge in this case. So think about that. Yeah. Someone of that political orientation. Is this going to strengthen American democracy through the rule of law, or is this uh, on the verge of chaos? What do you think is going to be the effect in the long to term? To be determined, but if they didn't go ahead with this indictment, that would have been the death knell for the rule of law. What do you think of the uh, possibility of MAGA uprisings, that this could herald the boogaloo yeah. or whatever? It's always possible, and the closer that he comes to jeopardy, to facing personal jeopardy, the greater the likelihood of that. And we haven't seen the end of the indictments. This is just the tip of the iceberg. If he's indicted for J6-related activities, either in Georgia or federally, that's even more important. Are they going to lock him up? I don't know whether they'd actually lock him up. Uh, you know, personally, I'm not a friend of putting people in prison. I hear you. Guys, what, he's already seven, 76, 77 years right. old. A conviction, even if they don't lock him up, will carry with it certain disabilities in terms of travel and uh, other things that uh, will be 
very unpleasant for anyone to experience. He'll be like millions of Americans under court supervision. That's true. In a generic sense, that's exactly what will happen. And then you just take a look at the specifics. If he's sentenced to home confinement, for you or me, that would be pretty terrible. We'd go claustrophobic. But for Donald Trump, he'd be at Mar-a-Lago. They'd have to build a prison just for him. This is taking us to un- unchartered territory. It's amazing. If he's reelected, then they can't continue with the prosecution, although he'd have that hanging over his head. And then the question is, can he pardon himself? And can America be America if a person can be indicted 10 times, run an election, win, take office, and then pardon himself? It's not an America that I would have recognized a decade ago. Retired judge and professor of constitutional law, Bill Blum. Meanwhile, Ukraine says its troops recaptured three villages from Russian forces in the southeast of the country. It's the first settlements regained since Ukraine launched its counteroffensive. The Russian Defense Ministry insists it's repelling Ukrainian attacks. It says Ukrainian attacks on the front line have been unsuccessful. In related news, Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg says the collapse of the Kakova Dam in Ukraine was an act of ecocide by Russia. The dam burst has unleashed floods, forcing thousands of residents to flee. Russia and Ukraine have blamed each other for the incident. The 20-year-old activist tweeted Russia's ecocide was unprovoked and its invasion of Ukraine is yet another atrocity. She says our eyes are once again on Russia, who must be held accountable for their crimes. As the war grinds on in Ukraine, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell insists the debt ceiling deal worked out last week with his promise of record defense spending, $886 billion worth, is not enough putting him at odds with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who's opposed increased funding for Ukraine. Senator McConnell. Well, all I can tell you at this particular point is defense is radically underfunded related to Chinese threat. And Ukraine probably will need additional assistance. So figuring out how to do this is going to be a challenge. As the war drums continue their beat, an attempt at peace was temporarily rebuffed in Vienna, Austria. Peace activists say just 48 hours before the global peace conference was to begin, the venue abruptly canceled. Later, the press club Concordia canceled a news conference because one of the guests, they said, might do an interview with Russia. The Summit for Peace in Ukraine is sponsored by the International Peace Bureau, Code Pink, the International Fellowship of Reconciliation, and numerous other anti-war groups. The organization says it's critical of Russia's conduct of the war, but says the focus should be on creative solutions. One of the signatories is longtime U.S. peace activist Kathy Kelly. People have been planning for months to have a summit and to negotiate together to try to find a way to issue a statement about the war in Ukraine. And there's been no um, decision made on what those negotiations and discussions will actually result in. But the government of Ukraine's representative in uh, Vienna expressed disfavor. And so the uh, person who owned the venue for the conference decided to withdraw his agreement to host the conference at a place called the Katamaran. And so this was done two days before the conference was to begin. The conference begins in earnest tomorrow, but people are, of course, gathering, um, and some were already 
landed, but many were still in the air when this decision came through. And then the next decision was that their press conference also couldn't be held at the press club in Vienna. So this seems to be a chilling innuendo about efforts to earnestly work for peace. I can tell you, since the statement went out expressing deep concern over the cancellation, and my name was on the statement, I've never had so much hate mail since breaking sanctions against Iraq. It certainly hits a raw nerve, and that's understandable. This is war, and people have suffered immensely and in ways that I could never fully grasp. I understand that, but it's wrongful to allege that the likes of Jeffrey Sachs and Noam Chomsky and Medea Benjamin and Claire Daly are stooges or shills for the Russian government. That's that's going too far by not allowing people to express their views and try to set aside using weapons to resolve this conflict. Why is it that uh, peace organization is blocked from having a conference. Isn't this what it's all about, about trying to move the country and the world towards peace? What's going on with that? Movement is perhaps the key word. I think that those who oppose the conference have sort of moved all of the speakers and intentions into representation of the Russian side, you know, that there are two sides. And if you aren't taking the Ukrainian side, then you're enabling and you're helping the Russian side. And those who want to say, look, now you're supporting genocide, you're supporting the displacement and the maiming of women and children. It's not thought through very carefully. If you are advocating for peace, then you want, by definition, you'd want the status quo, and then Russia gains by that status quo. If you wait till you're perfect, you'll wait a very long time. And I don't mean to say that casually or cavalierly, but I think at some point, people... Uh, who are coming from the country supplying vast amounts of weaponry need to pressure other governments, particularly within NATO, to start moving toward a ceasefire very quickly to favor negotiations. And I think that the United States has scuttled negotiations several times. Now, others have said, well, hold your conference in Moscow, see how far you get there. And, okay, that's fair. I don't think that the government in Moscow is honestly trying to become a broker for peace. But this doesn't alleviate us from the moral responsibility to try to stop slaughter and bloodshed, especially when it's being occasioned using weapons manufactured in the United States and enriching the coffers of people who've already made billions by selling weapons that prolong wars and exacerbate wars. And, you know, that's why also the drone weapon manufacturer is so crucial, because people who, you know, talk about not having skin in the game, people who are nowhere even near the scenes where the bloodletting and the displacement and the misery are being caused, are able to manufacture and use terrible weapons. Of course, also there are the much more unsophisticated drones that people on the ground are using as well. Your reaction to the dam? People have to try to get as much information as possible, I think, by holding open the possibility that we don't know who caused this terrible damage is something that we have to hang on to before we become guilty of 
knee-jerk immediate reactions that can't be substantiated. But we also have to learn everything we can about the consequences of the dam having been destroyed. And it was certainly a very grave consequence for people in, and around the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant. Fortunately, apparently there will be enough water to continue the cooling that's so crucial so that that plant doesn't have an eruption. You know, the grain deals are being affected. And of course, the people whose homes are destroyed and their belongings are destroyed and people have died. And it's likely a war crime, but I don't think it's there's enough information at this point to make the decision who did it, who didn't do it. It is in the midst of an offensive. Yes, that's certainly true. And what do you think of the offensive? You don't seem to have a lot of faith in it. If you're protesting in the midst of it, you're not lending your support to it. General Mark Milley, who was the Joint Chiefs of Staff commander, the head of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, had said way back in November that this war will not be settled on the battlefield. And Andrew Vesevich, who is a teacher in the war college previously anyway and now works with the Quincy Institute, has also said this isn't going to be settled on the battlefield. So if, if people are going to go to the negotiation table eventually, I think to say, well, we can't go until we're sure that we've got our hands on more territory is a very bad bet uh, because, you know, Russia has four times the population of Ukraine. They've got a quite a massive capacity to produce weapons and get the weapons into the region. So I don't think that it's necessarily supportive to people in Ukraine to say, keep fighting, keep going, don't give up now prolong, you'll prevail, we'll help you. There are some very cynical people in this set of warring parties, especially those who are not themselves supplying boots on the ground, more or less, whose sons and daughters are not the ones being killed. To my mind, the most sensible thing to do is to get to the negotiating table, try to get non-NATO-aligned countries to facilitate these negotiations, but make sure that rich and wealthy countries like the United States, like China, communicate that they now want to see this war end. U.S. peace activist Kathy Kelly. You're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. In national news, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention went further than ever before in discussing police killings as a public health problem. The Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report addresses health threats to the country and has long mentioned guns as having a major impact on the mortality of Americans. The report has even mentioned cops before, but this time they went deeper into this subject than ever before. A visiting scientist at Harvard, Justin Feldman, says while the acknowledgement of police killings of civilians is a big step for the CDC, they are overly concerned with the ethnicity of the police involved and not enough with their social role. Both the National Institutes of Health and CDC have really, they've gone above and beyond what Congress has demanded of them um, by really shying away from gun research in general, although they, they do some. It's, it's not true that it's completely uh, off the, the radar, but they are very cautious because they're afraid of losing future funding or facing further scrutiny. It is political. It's not entirely scientific. Oh, that, yeah, definitely. They're, they're, uh, go- government scientists are always operating, thinking about the politics of their work and how Congress and potentially presidential administration will react they have just begun to add people killed by police 
in those statistics? If you go all the way back to the 1950s, there has been data on what are called legal intervention deaths. That's the classification under the International Classification of Diseases. These are people killed by police. Legal intervention deaths have been reported in tables in statistical reports for a very long time by CDC. However, they have not really discussed police killings as a public health issue. They have not done any analyses of the legal intervention death data. It's only until now that we see them really commenting on it and in a kind of deeper way. Police deaths are often dismissed as a tiny minority compared to criminal deaths caused by criminals, that this is a rare event when it happens. A few bad apples, they say. You're, has this data disproven that or contradicted that? It's technically true that most homicide, so killing of someone by another person, most of those don't involve police. However, police kill somewhere between 1,000 and 1,200 people per year, and those are especially consequential. One, because those are government officials operating under color of law who we as citizens empower to do that, to use violent force. Therefore, there's a higher level of scrutiny that should be applied. And two, these tend to be enormously consequential deaths in terms of reactions of communities to these deaths and the limited justice that people get. Usually when a regular person goes out and kills someone else, there are consequences. When police do it, it's not clear that there are going to be any kinds of consequences. Where does the CDC and the MMWR come into this? There's a relatively new system called the National Violent Deaths Reporting System. They collect more detailed data on what are called violent deaths. So that is everything from homicides to suicides to accidental gun injuries. They have been around for about 20 years, but have only been nationwide for the last couple of years. So they wrote up a report, CDC, in this MMWR journal about various kinds of violent deaths, and they included hundreds of words on legal intervention deaths or, or police killings and talked about racial inequality in those deaths, so black and indigenous people being more likely than white people to be killed by police. And they even called on health departments to collect better data on the demographics of officers involved in police killings. And what do they find? They're not making any real strong statements. They're still being rather cautious. And even the idea of collecting better demographics on officers, that's the one thing we already actually have data on from other sources, from police department sources. At this point, nobody really thinks that having a more diverse police force will curb police killings to any meaningful level. I do think it's a good first step in terms of them being open to acknowledging and discussing police killings. If there were more minority cops, it would be less killings as they're, they're sort of going with that. Yeah, they're not straight out saying that, but they are suggesting if more data were collected, we could understand that more. At this point, a lot of people who are doing research on policing have moved past that. It probably won't make much of a dent on police killings. The bigger problem to me is that they're still missing a lot of these police killings in this data set. Really? How is that? The main issue here is around 
this construct called manner of death. When someone dies in the U.S., it is either considered a natural death, so a result of disease process, or an unnatural death, the result of an injury. And for that, it can either be a suicide, homicide, or undetermined, or accidental. The NVDRS system does not collect accidental deaths unless they're a result of shooting. So a lot of deaths in custody that are non-firearm deaths, so someone who dies after they are struck with a taser or hit with batons or held in restraint or held in a chokehold, many times that will be called accidental by the death investigator, and it will never make it into this data set. And that's a very important category of deaths because there's often a lot of debate over whether the police's action even caused the death. So that means we really, of all kinds of police killings, we need data on those. You can think about George Floyd's death and how Officer Derek Chauvin in the murder trial where he was ultimately convicted, a big part of the defense was that Chauvin didn't actually kill George Floyd. It was fentanyl or underlying heart disease or even breathing in carbon monoxide from a nearby van. These were all arguments that expert witnesses put forth. In Baltimore, it was a rough ride in the back of a van. With Freddie Gray. It might have been, in a sense, an accident. They wanted to give him the rough ride treatment, and then when they saw he was dead, it sort of went too far. It turns out that coroners and medical examiners think in different ways. It really depends what state or what county you die in. In some states or counties, the medical examiner thinks an accident can be an act that was meant to harm, but not meant to kill. If you go to a neighboring county, the medical examiner might believe something else. They might believe if it was meant to harm, it should be considered a homicide. That is the national standard to the extent one exists. The Professional Association for Forensic Pathologists says these should mostly be homicide manner of death classifications for these police killings. But it's rare that they will be classified as such. And you even have cases where the pathologist has been overruled by a county sheriff, for example, or pressured by police to change the manner of death from homicide to either accidental or undetermined. And that can have serious implications for public perception, for whether a district attorney prosecutes the police officers, also in civil suits for wrongful death. Justin Feldman is a visiting scientist at Harvard. In related news, police in Aurora, Colorado have released body camera footage following the death of a teenager who was shot by an officer. 14-year-old Jordell Richardson, who is black, was shot by an officer who chased him as he ran from a local store where police said he shoplifted vape material. Body camera video released Friday showed Richardson running from officers as they shout for him to stop. One of the two officers involved in the case, James Snap, eventually pinned him down on the ground. Stop, please. You got me, Richardson can be heard saying. A second officer shouted, gun, gun, let go of the fucking gun. I'm going to shoot your ass. Shortly after, a gunshot can be heard and Richardson wailing in pain. Richardson had a BB gun, but no other weapon. As reported earlier, a federal indictment accuses former President Trump of possessing documents on United States and foreign nations' nuclear weapons, including plans of attack and U.S. plans for retaliation in the event of an attack. The Justice Department's special counsel, Jack Smith, says Trump has endangered Americans. The men and women of the United States intelligence community and our armed forces dedicate their lives 
to protecting our nation and its people. Our laws that protect national defense information are critical to the safety and security of the United States, and they must be enforced. Violations of those laws put our country at risk. Adherence to the rule of law is a bedrock principle of the Department of Justice, and our nation's commitment to the rule of law sets an example for the world. We have one set of laws in this country, and they apply to everyone. The allegations that Trump played fast and loose with top-secret documents came the same week it was reported in prison former FBI agent Robert Hansen had died at age 79. Hansen got a life sentence as the single most damaging spy in United States history, at least that's according to the FBI. His treachery caused several U.S. spies operating in Russia to be killed. Hansen, using the alias Ramon Garcia, passed some 6,000 documents and 26 computer disks to his handler, that's according to the government. Hansen was paid $1.4 million for his efforts. Former Washington Post reporter David Weiss covered the trial in 2002. He later wrote, The Bureau and the Mole, The Unmasking of Robert Philip Hansen. Weiss tells the news Hansen's motivations remain murky. What was Robert Hansen's motivation for spying uh, for the Russians while he was at the FBI? And I think the number one motivation was ego. Um, Robert Hansen did not feel like his uh, intelligence and capabilities were appreciated at the FBI, and he bumped up against a level beyond which they were not promoting him. And uh, once he got involved with the Russians, um, they played the very well, made him feel very important. And I think that he, um, he felt like um, he was really involved in something daring and exciting and that made him feel much more important or that made him feel the importance he wished he had had at the FBI. So that's one piece of the motivation. The other's money. Um, and it was not ideology. In fact, he did his job at the FBI very well at the same time he was spying for the Russians. Um, he was not like a secret communist or, or anything like that. So, and, and, nor was he compromised into it. Um, if you get to the acronym of MICE, you know, money and ideology and compromise and ego, that's what each of the letters stand for when you're thinking about a spy. He got about $1.8 million out of it um, in terms of uh, money the Russians left for him in a park uh, at a certain spot where he would leave them documents in a hefty garbage bag and then uh, they would signal each other in various ways and they never knew his identity the entire time he was a spy. Is that because he had spycraft uh, knowledge? Yes, yes. Um, he was in the counterterrorism unit, I mean the counterintelligence unit at the FBI. So he knew all about spycraft and one of the ways to get caught most easily is if the folks you're spying for know your name and know who you are. And he went under the alias of Ramon Garcia the entire time. And he told them, if I ever see that you're trying to watch me in any way or identify who I am, we're finished. I'm not going to do this anymore. 
And the Russians feel very nervous taking in someone as a, as a spy who volunteers. Well, Hansen volunteered by throwing some classified documents over the gate of an FBI office uh, one time. And he proved he was bona fide by giving the Russians the names of three officials who were in the United States whose job was to spy for Russia, but who were secretly working for the U.S. and getting information about Russia for the FBI. And so Hansen gave up the names and identities of these three people uh, to the Russians, and under false pretenses, they were called back to Moscow, and they were all executed. So he had blood on his hands, and the Russians had someone who they trusted as a spy as a result of what he gave them. Now, he must have known what he was getting into. I mean, that he would get people killed by giving them their names. I mean, he knew the uh, the wages of that business. Correct. So where does his ethics lie there? What happened to any ethical? Was the person totally without ethics? He was a regular church-going man. In fact, he went just about every day uh, to church. Uh, and, um, you know, we're, we're looking at daily mass, uh, weekly confession, and nightly betrayal. And uh, I think he cleared his conscious, conscience out through two things. Number one, um, number one was uh, going to confession very regularly, and the second one was uh, he was a compartmentalizer. And while he went to church and took his family there, I think he took different parts of what he was doing, the FBI job, the spy job, his family life, his religious life, and he had the capability to have these in different parts of his mind, and uh, that's what happened. I mean, he was a church-going, uh, believing Catholic and a member of Opus Dei, which is a sort of secretive organization that is part of the Catholic Church, sort of. Not formally part of the Catholic Church, but is a group that uh, was formed. I can't under- help, though, but think of that commandment that says thou shalt not kill is pretty clear you're not supposed to kill people if you're a believing catholic i think that he was very interested in proving to the russians that he was the real deal and getting them over what he knew was their reluctance to take somebody who was a walk-in because the russians would fear they were getting set up so for him that was part of the currency of exchange to get to the place he wanted to be. Right. And where was that? Where did he want to be? What was it that the FBI was denying him that he wanted so bad? The FBI was denying him the validation uh, for his intelligence and capabilities, uh, he believed. And he believed he wasn't promoted high enough. He felt he was a lot smarter and better than many people who were in higher-ranking positions than he was, and it really bothered him a lot. Every that's one of us... Ego, have fe- that's the number one place where ego comes in, because the guy was working in counterintelligence, and, you know, the entire time he was spying, he did his job at the FBI extremely well, also. <laughs> and 
and he just didn't feel like he was being recognized. Yeah. And uh, so uh, you're right that a lot of people don't feel like they're being recognized, and that doesn't mean they become spies, but you've got to remember <laughs> one thing. Yeah. He had access to all kinds of documents that were classified, and he had access um, to information that other people don't have at their fingertips. And he spent his days in counterintelligence, providing the FBI with information that had to do with spies and spycraft and all the rest. So he lived in that world already. Right. What type of world was that? Well, a very, very uh, secret one. You know, he managed to, I mean, this is something that's like very cloak and dagger. They would leave. Uh, they would leave things around Washington D.C., uh, including thumbtacks and telephone poles, um, to signal one another um, when they wanted. When he wanted to do a dead drop of documents in a hefty garbage bag, and when they were going to pay him, the Russians, by dropping it in the same place in a park near his house, um, it was. It had all the excitement and intrigue of a James Bond. Thriller, and it made hit, and he got a thrill out of it. In addition to the money, he got a real thrill out of it. And uh, you have to remember, the Russians are fantastic spies. Um, and or you know, a country that's built on uh, some of the principles that are there in Russia breeds great spies. And they had a great handler, the person who mostly communicated with him who knew how to play on his ego and was very, very skilled and had a lot of expertise. And so, you know, they, they knew, and, you know, I, I think also, um, in that, in that clandestine, uh, secret world that they moved in, um, it came very naturally to him. He blended in, um, he was the last, person anyone would have ever suspected would be a spy people were blown away three people he drove to work with every day were shocked um he just didn't seem like that person in any way and so you know people were shocked i mean look he was a church going man every sunday morning Hanson and his family sat up front on the left side of the church out in Great Falls, Virginia. Right across on the other side up front was FBI Director Louis Free and his family. So he and Louis Free were right across from each other in church every Sunday. And, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty remarkable. Right. Uh, when you stop and think about it. A couple of, I want to ask, uh, I have just two areas of question. The first one is, how was he caught? The way that he was caught is that the United States um, had a spy in Russia. And that individual went to the place where the Hansen documents were stored and uh, brought those documents out of Russia 
and delivered them uh, to the FBI. They were delivered to the FBI in a hefty garbage bag. And the FBI sent that garbage bag to a lab in West Virginia that they have to be examined. Uh, And they found fingerprints on it. And those fingerprints matched up to Robert Hansen. So as good as he was as a spy to get away with this for 20 years, the one thing he forgot was to wear gloves. A lot of people say that this proved that the FBI was totally incompetent. I think there's things the FBI uh, doesn't do well, but you have to remember that when they do their job well, people don't hear about it most of the time. Part of the reason for that is that they don't really want trials when they when they catch people because they don't want intelligence secrets and other things to be disclosed publicly. So what you end up hearing about the most is when they screw up. Having said that, they were too lax in many ways uh, in their procedures. In the Hansen case, he was, Robert Hansen never took a single polygraph test. They had no program then at the FBI uh, for, you know, we're talking about 1981, 2001. They had no program where every single person was regularly, um, was regularly, 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 pardon me, um, you know, checked to see if they would pass a polygraph. They, you know, Hanson literally hand-carried classified documents out of the FBI. They had no, they had no protocol in place to make sure that when people left each day, they were not taking, you know, things with them that, that belonged to the Bureau and should never leave the building. So, um, yes, they um, uh, had vast improvements that they needed to make. To call them as a whole incompetent is not something that I would say at all. Um, I covered terrorism for the Washington Post, and I can tell you that there were an enormous number of times that the FBI prevented all kinds of things from happening in the United States during that period, and the public never hears about them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I learned well, about them through my job at the Washington Post. Right. They don't even get articles about them because they uh, you might not know the whole story enough to write an article about it. That's right. Uh, yeah. I, I've been there. Been there, been there myself. Not quite at the same level, but definitely. In my reporting for the Washington Post, one thing I told the FBI director and one thing I told the attorney general was that I would never report something that would compromise an ongoing operation if I learned about it. Uh, and I would never publish something that truly put someone's life in jeopardy. Right. And so I had a very good dialogue with senior people. You're a patriotic American, like I hope all of us are. The Antifa protesters who fight with the police are doing it, whether they know it or not, out of a sense of patriotism. They would never do this kind of thing. How would this guy lose his desire to you know his patriotic desire that that so many people live by robert hansen would tell you that he's a patriotic american he would have said that before he died Uh, this was not about ideology it was about ego and money 
It, it, wow. And I understand what you're saying. It's just difficult to understand it, to feel it, because it seems so contradictory. You can say that. Just imagine how his wife, his kids, and their extended family felt. They knew nothing about this. Imagine knowing nothing about this and waking up one day to find out that your husband, your father, your sibling, your uncle is the most damaging spy in American history, and you had no clue about that. How many people died because of him, do you think? Three. Three. I thought it was more. Three that I'm I'm aware of. uh Uh-huh. I just heard rumors that it was a lot more than that. The Russians are well, very efficient. <laughs> three that I'm aware of when he yeah. gave up their identities. Uh, and right. Do you think there's any other Robert Hansons at work buried in the U.S.? I mean, we had Edward Snowden, a man I admire, actually. Uh, at least he believed in what he was doing. He reminds me more of those army intelligence guys during the Vietnam War who had enough of it and just started telling people what was going on. Are there any other people putting on thumb drives, putting top secret information on their little thumb drives and smiling past the security guards on the way out? I can't tell you I know exactly how and what they're doing or where they're doing it, but spying is something that has been around for thousands of years. Not hundreds, thousands. And so right now in the United States, there are more spies than there have ever been in history. Now, you're asking me a different question. Not are there spies from other countries, but are there moles? That is, people who work for the FBI or CIA or National Security Agency or Pentagon who are, you know, feeding information to, to foreign governments. And it's hard for me to believe that there are no people who are doing that. And it's also uh, very hard for me to believe that there are any people doing it right now to the extent that Robert Hansen did. And I say that because uh, to be the most damaging spy in American history is, is something that is hard to achieve. Even even yeah. as a traitor, he had and, to be good to do and, that. What kind of? How come they locked him up in? Uh, in you know, he spent the last twenty plus years, last years of his life, in uh, decades of his life in in Florence, Colorado. I know about that place. That's horrible. That's like twenty three hours a day locked down for twenty years. How can you survive that? Well, um, he had. It was a this. It was so da- the things he gave up were so damaging. I mean, he that the choice was the death penalty or life in solitary confinement. And he chose life in solitary confinement. By the way, in that prison, in that same prison in Colorado where Hanson was, the Unabomber is there, the Ted Kaczynski, the uh, uh, one of the people who was directly involved in the 9-11 attack and was part of Al-Qaeda is in that prison. The, uh, the shoe bomber is in that prison. 
The prison where Hansen was found dead also has the Unabomber um, and the uh, Sneaker Bomber um, and, uh, you know, one of the one of the people from Al Qaeda who was caught who was involved in in 9/11. Um, they've got quite a collection of rogues gallery, if you will, of um, mm-hmm. criminals. Right. We've seen so much about the uh, Trump administration and the FBI, and where the Trump administration is claiming there's an, uh, there's a, uh, a secret government within the FBI that was out to get him. Does it link into any of this? What happened then with what's happening now in your mind? I don't know of anything that links the two at all. Two radically different situations. Yeah. Okay. Anything you'd like to add? The Bureau and the Mole, the book that I wrote, is a combustible blend of espionage, religion, and sex. I've never come across anything like it in my more than 20 years as a reporter at the Washington Post. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if I never come across anything else uh, that is as exotic and uh, as uh, devious and as complex as this. I mean, imagine selling the continuity of government plan to the Russians. That's how the president, the Supreme Court, and the Congress were going to operate in secret and where in the event of a nuclear attack. The Russians had that information from Hansen. The United States spent a billion dollars or something like that putting a secret tunnel underground into the Russian embassy so that the United States could eavesdrop. Hansen delivered that to the Russians. And the Russians used it then, once they knew about it, to feed misinformation and disinformation to the United States. Uh, The list goes on and on. In fact, in the back of the book, you will find uh, something called the Betrayals of the Spy. It's quite a list of items um, which he gave up. And uh, It's hard to believe. I have to say that I, I have to say that um, to think about this on the most personal of levels, um, I can't imagine what it would be like to wake up one day in a family situation and discover that someone you never suspected of anything was the most damaging spy in American history. Former Washington Post reporter David Weiss is author of The Bureau and the Mole, The Unmasking of Robert Philip Hansen. Hansen went undetected for years. Later investigations found missed red flags. After he became the focus of a hunt for a Russian mole, Hansen was caught taping a garbage bag full of secrets to the underside of a footbridge in a park in a dead drop. That's what it's called for Russian handlers. And you're listening to the news from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. In local news, New York City and much of the northeastern United States have suffered under some of the worst air pollution in its history, making New York's air among the worst on the planet. Smoke from wildfires in Canada sent a haze of smoke across the city. Visibility was cut as a thick blanket of orange smog made the streets seem otherworldly. Mayor Eric Adams says it's never happened before. This may be 
the first time we've experienced something like this on this magnitude, let's be clear, it is not the last. Climate change is accelerating these conditions, and we must continue to draw down emissions, improve air quality, and build resiliency. And these dangerous air quality conditions are clearly an urgent reminder that we must act now to protect our city, our environment, and the future of our children. Finally, Adams brushed away critics who say the city waited too long to reveal the crisis to residents. Adams says it took him by surprise, too. This was an extremely fast-moving issue. Uh, we had several uh, tweets uh, throughout the day, several communications, several co coordination. Uh, this was an extremely fast-moving, and the team was on top of this uh, at the beginning of the day. Uh, the beginning of the afternoon, I should say, and continue to move so. So what we should really try to prevent doing is to give any indication uh, that this administration did not proactively respond and did not move in the right direction to let New Yorkers know. The head of emergency management for the city is Zach Isco. He says extreme weather events are becoming commonplace. Fire season has come early. We know that generally fire season in Canada is in July. We know that we're seeing an unprecedented number of fires uh, and the difficulty they have putting it out. You put that together, it is likely that we will see further events like this. Emergency Management Head, Zach Isco. The early fires in Canada have experts worried the smoky conditions will continue over the city for the rest of the summer. And that's the news for the week of June 18, 2023. The news was written and produced by this reporter. You can hear the news at pauldirienzo.com. From New York City, I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.